everyone has these um, step counters, you know, and a lot of places people have to say, oh, I got to get my steps in. I got to go walk around the block. Well, if you could do your errands, you can go to the grocery store on a bike or walk or go to the movies or pick up your child at daycare. But you're getting your steps in just as part of daily life. You don't have to like fetishize it, yeah. <laughs> right? Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? This week, our guest is Inga Safran. She has been Philadelphia Inquirer's architecture critic since 1999. Her work has been recognized with numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2014. She was also recognized with the Loeb Fellowship from Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. Last year, Rutgers University Press published a selection of her columns in a book called Becoming Philadelphia, How an Old American City Made Itself New Again. She also wrote a book on the cultural history of sturgeon. Yes, you heard it right, sturgeon. It's called Caviar, the Strange and Uncertain Future of the World's Most Coveted Delicacy. Before becoming the Inquirer's architecture critic, Inga worked as a foreign correspondent for the Inquirer in Russia and the former Yugoslavia, where she covered the wars in Bosnia and Chechnya. I asked Inga about her journey in becoming an architecture critic. There's only a handful of them in the United States. How design can transform the public spaces of cities and why diseases like the coronavirus are the most powerful architects. Thank you for all the Twitter love from Sarah Behrens, Antia DeMarcillis, and Hannah Toes-Jones. And there are so many people like Joanna Uribe who reached out to us on LinkedIn. This is how you support this show. And if you want to support the show further, I don't need your money, but you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. It's so simple to do. Open the app on your phone, click five stars, and if you feel compelled to do even more, give us a comment on Apple Podcasts. Right now, that's the only podcast where you can actually leave a comment. Believe it or not, actually helps us to be found by other listeners. We appreciate your help. Now, here's my conversation with Inga Safran. Inga Safran, welcome to Design Lab. So happy that you're here. Oh, thanks for having me, Banku. I'm such a huge fan of yours, and you are an architecture critic at the mm -hmm. Philadelphia Inquirer. What the heck is an architecture critic? It's <laughs> such a terrible title. It's kind of a a legacy title. There was a time, there were a few more architecture critics than there are today working for newspapers. And I would say in the 60s and 70s, during sort of like the really intense modernist style wars, they really did uh, write about like buildings from a kind of aesthetic and stylistic point of view. And for example, when this famous architect, Edward Durrell Stone, deviated from the modernist orthodoxy, you know, when he designed uh, this, this building on Columbus Circle, he got terribly beat up for having like small little traditional details, even though overall it was a modernist building. So that's what they used to do, just like duke it out uh -huh. over, over like style and 
those kinds of aesthetics. But sort of my my cohort, my generation of critics has treated the coverage of design more broadly. I've been doing it for, for like 22 years. It started when Philadelphia was in very bad shape economically, and there were no fancy buildings being built. And the idea of, I didn't have a, a beautiful like museum or a cutting edge office building to write about. And so I, I was really forced to think differently about how to approach this beat. And I have always been a very strong urbanist. In fact, that's my dark secret that I really came to architecture through urbanism. And I'm interested in cities, in, in how they make decisions about their built form and that how that affects our daily lives, uh, how it makes us feel, how it contributes to the, the life and success of a city. And so I, I began writing about the intersection of design and placemaking and transit, parks, and everything we build as a community. And that's, you know, Architecture Critic is this legacy title. It doesn't really explain it. The title of my column is called Changing Skyline. That was not my idea. (laughs) (laughs) And and sometimes people like write to me and said, but you're not writing about the skyline (laughs) because they take it literally. But because I'm actually more interested in what goes on at the ground, uh, on the street, on the side, where we intersect with buildings. So, so I don't know what I should be called, but... I, and you and know, before the, this, you were a foreign correspondent. Yeah, right? You yeah, used to yeah. work in the former Yugoslavia reporting on wars and stuff uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, I actually, so life takes a lot of strange paths. And you know, I, I started out like a lot of newspaper reporters. I, I covered municipal government. I had this dream of being a foreign correspondent. And somehow I got to be one. And I, I was based in Yugoslavia in the 90s during these terrible wars. That was I, a rough time. It was so tragic. Yeah. And Yugoslavia was a wonderful country. And I was there when it like broke up into six parts and there was terrible fighting. And then I, after that, I became the Moscow correspondent because uh, a lot of people forget newspapers like the Inquirer had uh, foreign bureaus. And I went to Moscow thinking, oh, this is going to be like a really easy job. And then the communist government fell. Yeltsin came into power. There was all sorts of chaos. And then they had a war. So I ended up covering a war in this region called Chechnya in the Caucasus Mountains. I just couldn't get away from these wars. But I mean, and that that was like the war in, in Yugoslavia. It was very ethnically driven with various ethnic groups wanting to control the area where they live. It was through those two wars, actually. I mean, I had always been interested in cities, but and I was always interested in how we shape our communities. A lot of times people ask me, how do you go from being a foreign correspondent to an architecture? Uh Well, both things are really about how we construct our cultures and our environments. I love to study for other cultures. So... As when I covered the war in Yugoslavia, I was in Sarajevo, it was being bombed and shelled. And then I was in in Grozny, which is the capital of Chechnya, Mm. when it too was being shelled and destroyed. And I was in Banja Luka, another city in in Bosnia. It's just heartbreaking to me to how these cities are really like one of the great things our cultures have produced and to see us Mm. destroy them was so heartbreaking for me. 
And it really resonated because I grew up as a child in the 60s and I saw all the terrible things Americans did to cities Mm. with highways and urban renewal. And I saw parallel. We treat cities in the way these warring societies treated their cities. Well, that's my that's how I explain my segue. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah. I how many of these architecture critics are there in the U.S. about? Oh, it's so sad because local newspapers, local journalism is really suffering right now. And newspapers have experienced tremendous cutbacks. So I don't know how many there were at the, in the heyday, maybe 10 or 12. Now I'm guessing there's six or seven. You know, people with full-time jobs where they pay you a salary, give you health coverage, and the numbers are dwindling. And yes, I mean, I think it's really a big problem because there are reporters, ordinary news reporters, who might cover some of these issues in a, in a news way. But I do think there's a value to point of view journalism where you make sense of these decisions. Yeah. So losing the, the critic part, I think, is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, because you see there's so many of these food critics out there mm-hmm. and art critics mm-hmm. and the work that you do, I, I feel is so influential. I've learned so much from reading your articles and your new book that, that came out. And I feel this discipline of looking at culture through this lens of architecture and the mm. built environment is such a important way of doing it. And, and I want to uh, dive a little bit deep into looking at exploring the culture of health of cities through through your lens mm-hmm. and how the virus has mm-hmm. impacted uh, mm-hmm. c- cities. But first, let's get to your book. Mm-hmm. I love your book. It's called Becoming Philadelphia, How an Old American City Made Itself New Again. It was published during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is tough. I published a book during the pandemic, which is tough too. And you have a great essay in the book on pop-up parks in Philly that you wrote in 2013, in which I found so cool because now we're seeing this proliferation of these outdoor spaces Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. can you explain why Philly started doing these pop-up parks and the future of pop-up parks because of the impact of coronavirus? Yeah. It's interesting because I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday who said pop-ups and parklets, which was one of the early versions, were the the predecessor of today's streeteries. Mm. And I thought that was a really good point. And but it wasn't just Philly, it was a whole movement. And I and um I think this having done this job so long, I can really see this amazing arc of change in cities from a period when everything was very car focused and we were tearing up our cities to make traffic flow more easily. And then sometime in the late nineties, early two thousands, which happened to coincide with population increases in cities, people started saying, wait a minute, I want to be able to walk. I want to be able to have like uh, sit outside at a cafe. We always look to Europe where there's a whole cafe culture and there started to be a change in perspective. And there was in New York, there was a very a visionary a streets commissioner uh, named Jeanette Sadiq Khan. Yeah. And she had the idea of, she looked at Broadway in New York and said, wow, it's way too wide. We don't need all this capacity. How about if we take back a couple of lanes and make a kind of quick and dirty plaza? And she went to hardware stores and actually 
bought those web lawn chairs and she had some barriers and fenced it off. And like in, in two days, they had a park. At, at it's amazing. Love. It was so cheap to be able right. to do that. I think she talked yeah. about in her book, Street Fight. It's like, yeah. like getting paint, going to a local hardware store and transforming an outdoor space. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, no, it was so brilliant. It got so much attention. But I, sh- I should be fair to San Francisco because San Francisco claims that it was their idea first. <laughs> and they they began corralling off parking spaces and they built a little platform and put some chairs there, sometimes in front of restaurants or bookstores. And that was really the origins of this. Uh, uh, actually, it goes back a little further because even before the parklets began, there used to be this annual thing uh, called Parking Day around mm. in cities around the world where architects would come out and in a matter of hours transform parking spaces. And they they saw that as a demonstration project. Anyway, then San Francisco came up with the parklets and New York came up with these uh, to fa- traffic lanes to create plazas. People just loved them. And this probably began happening after the recession in 2008, where mm. cities had no money and they couldn't like spend millions on big parks. And it was a way to create public space very cheaply. And cities all over the world copied this. These things never happen in one place. They always spread really rapidly. And it enabled people to get outdoors, to relax. They could be with their dogs. And and now, of course, and then the pandemic. The pandemic really accelerated that. We learned eventually during the pandemic that it was reasonably safe to be outdoors with other people. So since we couldn't gather inside, cities began closing streets or parts of streets. Streeteries emerged and it was wonderful. I mean, I don't know a single person who didn't like it. There was hard, even in Philly where people love their parking spaces, there was hardly any griping about, oh my God, I can't park. Uh, people, people were finally willing to say, okay, I'll give up a couple of parking spaces to gain this really nice amenity. Yeah, this, the city has been transformed through, yeah. through the pandemic in, in a better way through these uh, outdoor spaces. I find that when there are these constraints that design flourishes and creativity flourishes. Mm-hmm. So, so we have the constraint of the recession that led mm-hmm. to the rise of outdoor spaces mm-hmm. and the constraint of the pandemic of mm-hmm. not being able to go inside led to this creativity of redesigning mm-hmm. our, our outdoor spaces. And mm-hmm. I was curious to get your thoughts on how do you feel the pandemic will impact the design of the future design of cities? Because we've seen this relationship between architecture, design, and planning, mm. and how viruses have transformed those relationships. And thinking back to the last pandemic in the mm. early 1900s, mm. how that influenced mm. cities, how cholera actually mm. led to the modern sewage and sanitation mm. systems that we mm. had. And how tuberculosis and airborne disease, and I didn't know this, but doing my research actually influenced modern, a modernist architecture. Is that mm. right? There's like a lot more light and air in the design of buildings. Yes, from that's true. Tuberculosis. So yeah. I just was like yeah. fascinated of how yeah. viruses, yeah. disease impacts big... the built environment. They're the most powerful architects. I love that. <laughs> Yes, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, we continually adapt our built environment in, in response to disease, right? And what you said about the, the 1918 uh, flu epidemic is, is so true in cholera. So in a kind of maybe 
not very exciting way, we might see different kinds of ventilation systems in buildings. You know, I, mm-hmm. I talked to some, there's actually, you know, surprisingly a couple of office buildings being built right now in Philly. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about, do they need HEPA filters, these fancy filters and ultraviolet? Apparently you can kill some airborne stuff with ultraviolet mm. lights in the in the ventilation system. So we, we might see those kinds of adaptations. And I'm actually, that sounds boring, but I'm actually <laughs> super excited because I feel so many of our buildings are medically sealed, yeah, even, yeah. even hospitals, right? Yeah, like I cannot yeah. open a window in a hospital. And again, some of these yeah. office buildings, you can't open a window. And I mean, especially during the pandemic, when I was working in the emergency room, but there's, there are not every room that we have is a negative mm-hmm. pressure isolation room. Mm-hmm. So I would, I was like, Hey, I wish I could just open up a window and put a fan out there. Cause that yeah. would at least provide some natural ventilation. Right. And right. I'm wondering, will we see more opportunities to put in natural ventilation in buildings in a decade or two from now? (laughs) I don't don't know. I don't know. I wish. But I do think cities, you know, we are already seeing major shifts in our, our built environment because of the pandemic. And a lot of them are really sad. It's accelerated online shopping and it's really hit retail very hard. That was happening before. But, how, you know, one of the things I, I write about a lot is how do we make our ground floor spaces interesting and alive and add to the whole experience of walking or biking or traveling down the street? And like, if we don't have retail anymore, what do we put on the ground floor? One thing we have seen is urgent care. (laughs) (laughs) Thank thank God for urgent care facilities, which are popping up everywhere. And and weed dispensaries, things you can't (laughs) order online. Of course, restaurants, but like, and hair salons, you can't do that online. But you know, how far can we take it? So I'll be interested to see what other kinds of ground floor uses we come up with. Generally speaking in cities, depending on the street, people don't like living on the ground floor in an apartment building. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously in a house they do, but so what, how are we going to populate these ground floors? I think that's a big, because for more than a century or a century and a half, our cities have been built around commercial corridors of shops and businesses and offices. We do, American cities are built around a center where we do our business and all that has gone out the window. Mm. We don't know, are commuters going to come into the center to work in offices? And how often, how many, we don't know. If they don't come in, who, who will keep these lunch places going? And who will after work bars? All that is subject to, to, to change. And, and that affects how we design things. And um, that, That's so crazy to think that a virus will change what the actual storefront on the ground street of the future of cities might look like. Yeah. So that's one really big change. Of course, automation is another one, right? The pandemic accelerated sort of a self-checkout in, in, in grocery stores. Now we have Amazon Go, which I just read today in the Inquirer, has opened two of these groceries in, I think, Bucks County, where they have these electric, electric carts with like sensors. Every time you put like a package in your cart, it it tallies it up. So that means even fewer um, people, human beings. Like you don't even have to check out. You just like put it in your cart and you leave, right? Yes, exactly. Crazy. Yeah, no, it is really crazy. And so the fear of germs, the fear of stuff, 
um, produces those kinds of innovations for better or worse, maybe we'll be wearing masks all the time permanently in, in, in parts of Asia. Uh, that's the case. People just wear masks. It's, or... it's not a political thing, mask wearing. Yeah, my my no. parents live in South Korea. And, uh-huh. and then also when I look here in public spaces a lot, when I see who's wearing the mask most, it's usually Asians uh-huh. because we've, we're just so used to it. Like we've, yeah. we come from countries where mm. it has, that have been impacted by mm. previous viruses. And so we have this history of, mm-hmm. yes, a virus can kill tens of thousands of people. A mask yeah. can prevent those. Yeah, it wasn't, I, I was in uh, China and Hong Kong and it wasn't a hundred percent of the people wearing masks. Correct. There were just, just some people to wear them, I guess. And maybe we'll see that here. It just becomes part of your wardrobe. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think another change the pandemic has produced, or I like to think it's produced, is, is a greater appreciation for parks. Mm. And this city has terribly underfunded its parks. What it was amazing to me to see in the city budget this year that they did not get an increase. They just barely held their own. That's unfortunate because that's what kept us going during all this, being able to go out to a park and sit on the grass or bench. Yeah. Right. And I I read that someone had said parks are equal to the lungs of a city Mm. and that the public park movement started like in the 1800s mm. when that because of overcrowded conditions mm-hmm. and people needed a place to get out in these rapidly mm. growing cities. Yes, and yes. I was curious to get your thoughts on why are some of the most poorest neighborhoods in our city have the less green spaces Yeah, and why that- the richer neighborhoods have green spaces. I read this New York Times article that came out recently and that it was like this cool like interactive piece where mm-hmm. and it focused on Philadelphia actually on Chestnut Hill, mm-hmm. which is one of our richest. And mm-hmm. I think it showed more than 60% of the surface was covered in trees. Mm-hmm. But then you go to a neighborhood in uh, North Philly of nice town average income there's like 37,000 mm-hmm. and then less than 10% are mm-hmm. covered by trees. So right. you have this mm-hmm. inequity of greenness in neighborhoods mm. based upon race and, mm. and income. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, I think there are many factors. I mean, Chestnut Hill uh, was built to be a suburb in the city. Mm-hmm. So there are m- many more single family houses on lots, large lots. So that allows for a lot of space between the buildings and a lot of greenery. And the fact that it's also wealthier, people can afford to plant trees and maintain their gardens, their suburban mm. style gardens. So, so and, and nice town Tioga is, is a denser, more urban form, but so, so, so there's going to be less space between the buildings for yep. greenery, but nevertheless, there's been a lot of correlation with redlining where the U.S. government created these maps to advise the banks on, on where to lend money for mortgages and home improvements and places that were redlined didn't get that money. And so those neighborhoods- For the audience who doesn't know what uh, is, can you give a little bit more of a flavor of what that, the design of these policies have led to just- Yeah. So in the 1930s, um, the U.S. government created all these maps to advise the bank. Neighborhoods were blighted, neighborhoods were successful, and uh, tremendous amounts of cities were redlined. And it was like they were rated, the neighborhoods were rated. And the ones with the low ratings, the banks, it was a low rating meant a high risk 
for the bank. And mm-hmm. so people couldn't get mortgages to buy houses or they couldn't get home improvement loans to fix up their houses. And so the effect of redlining was to amplify and accelerate the decline that was already happening. It was really terrible and it affected small and businesses, small businesses, like say you had a vegetable store, you wanted to improve it or you want to get a loan to start it, you couldn't get a loan. And already, I mean, those were immigrant neighborhoods of color, people who were already not wealthy. So the only way they could improve their situation was to leave the neighborhood. And that created all kinds of abandonment. So it kind of, it snowballed terribly. Anyway, there, there have been some studies correlating that redlining with the lack of trees. You know, when, when Philadelphia developed as a city, row houses in Philadelphia are really like the tenements of Philadelphia. In, mm. in New York, they built up they built very small apartments in six or story buildings or whatever. They could just enough people could walk up the stairs in Philly. We built these dense row houses and some of them were incredibly small. I mean, the the advantage of them, it allowed people of lesser means to actually buy and own their own homes, but they were tightly packed together. And yeah, it's not that much space. I I lived in one of those row houses after I graduated from college at Penn and there was a, bunch of dudes yeah. in cramped spaces yeah yeah no some of them are as small as like yeah i think ours is about like 900 square feet that's it was amazing. small i don't know how you got so many people i i, I live in a row house that's been expanded uh, it started out as what they famously call a trinity which is three three rooms stacked on top of it the great thing about the row houses is they're very malleable and before me who lived in this house they added an extra room on the back. So there are two rooms per floor and they added a fourth floor. So now I went from like 900 square feet to 2000 square feet. And I sometimes feel, feel my house is too big, but, but it is a great luxury to, to have all that space. So, so it's a great form. It's a great form as opposed to the tenement, which you can't, mm. the tenement apartment, you can't really change. I mean, maybe you could combine them, but anyway, so we have this form here. We also have this culture. It's very funny in, in South Philly. People didn't like trees for a long time, you know, and ethnic Italians in South Philly are f- famous for saying trees make dirt, which is true because trees drop their leaves. You have to sweep them up. If you don't sweep them up, they turn to kind of mulch. So they would not let trees be planted on their street, not out of poverty, but out of some just Culturally, they didn't like it. But now climate's getting hotter and shade is so, so important. And as you know, it correlates with so, so many conditions like asthma. So I'm sure there have been some efforts to to plant trees in cities and to create greener parks. During the Nutter administration in Philadelphia, they started this program to green schoolyards. Do you know about that? No, no, because schoolyards, I mean, it looks like prison. Sometimes yeah. there's so much concrete and it's like yeah. chain fences and mm. these buildings are so stark to meant to keep the children in. During yeah, the yeah, yeah, hours. yeah, yeah. So again, it goes back to the car. People are so obsessed with their cars and where are they going to park that a lot of schoolyards that turned into parking lots and I guess, you know, hard surface playgrounds. Right. And it was like pulling teeth to convince the, the staff of these schools, hey, it would be better if we planted some grass and we softened up the surface and 
put in a few trees, so you're just going to have to park somewhere else. And and the city introduced this program to green schoolyards, and they have, you know, done a few and made some progress and added a lot of innovative features like outdoor classrooms, which came in really handy during the pandemic, like sort of circles, you know, where kids could sit on a soft surface or maybe on tree stumps and they'd have it, they'd be sitting under a tree. That That's a really great movement to, to green schoolyards. I mean, it's not just in Philadelphia, it's across, the, there's an organization uh, that promotes the greening of schoolyards. Mm-hmm. Can you share with us some examples that you have seen on healthy cities? It can be either in Philly or across the world of like, this is a feature of a healthy city. And yeah, I was kind of curious to know based upon like your lens of like looking Mm. at the design of cities Mm -hmm. and if we were to design a healthy city, what what would that look like? And are there some examples Mm. from other cities across the world that you've seen? Yeah, well, I I definitely believe that cities where it's easy and comfortable and safe to walk and bike, like people feel good mm. being outside. And of course, Copenhagen is sort of the marquee city for this. They've created so many bike lanes and outdoor spaces, and they've really prioritized that people feeling safe. You know, I'm a biker. I, I bike everywhere. And for better or worse, I have no fear. But I know a lot of people are afraid to bike with traffic. Yeah. Um, I, I was it, so so I've taken care of so many mm-hmm. bicyclist injuries in the emergency <laughs> room in Center City, Philadelphia. I'm afraid to bike in the city. Oh, like Because I've seen so many horrific injuries from yeah. bicyclists. And oh. these weren't like bicyclists who were drunk, right? You we get yeah. some of those, but they were just commuting. And no, they were involved in horrific accents and what is it about how did it's like copenhagen uh, people always refer to that and like Mm. it's amazing how much of the population Mm. bikes and how little accidents they Mm. have yeah like what what are some how did what does it look like over there i've never been I've never been either, Uh but I certainly read about it a lot. I mean, I think a lot of the bike lanes have a protective barrier, which really is an important visual cue to motorists and makes people feel safer and really is safer. And I think they even have like very separated bicycle highways that have traffic lights that stop the bike traffic. Wow. You know, at, at key points, it regulated, and and that increases safety. And it's really it's a lot about culture and. there's a famous planner who's, who's kind of responsible for, for this in, in Copenhagen. And he often talks about how in the 50s and 60s, it was just as car dominated as any other city. And, um, and that's fascinating. People yeah, forget yeah. that it wasn't always like that. It was a car culture, just like how our U.S. cities were based yeah. upon call it car cultures. Yeah, yeah. So they made a, a conscious policy decision. And I'm sure there was a lot of grumbling in the beginning and people adopted it. I mean, when you ask about how everyone has these um, step counters and a lot of places, people have to say, oh, I got to get my steps in. I got to go walk around the block. Well, if you can do your errands, if you can go to the grocery store on a bike or walk or go to the movies or pick up your child at daycare, you're getting your steps in just as part of daily life. You don't have to like fetishize it, (laughs) right? So the more comfortable we make it in, in all neighborhoods, and this includes transit too, because, you know, not everyone can 15 miles to work. So we need good transit. And if you can walk to the transit stop and get to work and then, you know, walk to the lunch place, 
you know, walking and biking will be part of your daily routine and you'll be people will be less obesity, probably fewer, I don't know, fewer heart conditions, high blood pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like New York City is like one of the most walkable cities Mm -hmm. and they're one of the more healthier cities because of that. Yeah. So that's definitely something we should be doing to make um, cities healthier. I mean, it's it's the way we used to live. It's it's hard to get back to that. And, And planting trees and making parks available and playgrounds. And of course, unfortunately, in the, at this moment, we have to talk about gun violence. You know? This is one of the worst years for, for Philadelphia. I've mm. been treating so many people who have been shot th- this mm. year. It's been, it's yeah. been a terrible year. Yeah, t- just terrible. So, you know, you have parents who don't want their kids going outside to play because they're afraid. And that's not good for their health if yeah. they're parked in front of the TV, right? Uh, or video games or whatever. So we have to get our arms around this problem of of gun violence. You know, some people argue, and this is interesting, that trees and walkable streets and parks put more people on the street and could promote safety in that respect. So that's something to think about. Yeah, I think there's this density of streets where you kind of feel safer because Mm. you're not walking down some uh, street with no one there and these alleyways and mm-hmm. um, yeah I appreciate this sense of designing safer cities or, or culture of safety will bring mm-hmm. more people out mm-hmm. and lead to mm-hmm. more active lifestyle mm-hmm. and how I think we underestimate the fear that keeps people from doing that and yeah and I, I say this a lot too. I think we underestimate how the design of cities can impact health. Cause I, when I think of like a healthy city, I think about, well, the, a healthy city is reflected in the humans who live there. Mm-hmm. And so we have in, in our city where there's a 20 year lifespan, mm-hmm. depending upon which zip code mm-hmm. that you live in. And so much of that is shaped by our environments that we live. Like what, yeah. what are, what are all those factors that mm. impact our lifespan or our, our health? And there's so much there. Right. So I mentioned I was, I grew up in the sixties when there were still a lot of factories um, in cities and we didn't have pollution controls on like trash plants and stuff like that. And I remember as a kid, they would hand out these co- color coded cards. And if, if you saw like smoke coming out of a, like a factory that was black, you were supposed to like call this tip line. And anyway, you know, it was a big movement to try yeah. to control emissions. And today in American cities, maybe not everywhere, but around the world, but in American cities, there's, you never see like black plumes of smoke coming mm. out of industrial buildings, because we tackle that in most places. We have the EPA, we have pollution controls. So so we were able to make the air, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, we really made progress. So like, it seems daunting now, these problems, these health problems, but we did, we did address problems only a few years ago. And, and as you mentioned, we we stopped cholera, right? For the yeah. most part, we treated our water systems. And now it's really exciting that there's money to eliminate lead pipes. Yeah. So I think we, we can make progress. That's, that's a big area, lead pipes, right? You, yeah. You know, lead in water and, uh, and, and, and its effect is, is, is pretty, pretty serious on the health of, of children. 
Well, let's end on that optimistic <laughs> tone right there. Inga Safran, thank you for being on Design Lab by her book, Becoming Philadelphia. It's great. <laughs> thank um, we you. Thank- appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. You can find Inga Safran on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is at I-N-G-A-S-A-F-F-R-O-N. And check out her new book. It's called Becoming Philadelphia. Reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Head over to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment, tell us how we can improve. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover designed by Eden Liu. See you soon. <laughs>